Today's reading is from Psalm 125, which you can find on page 441 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As a mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous may use their hands to do evil. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. It's the word of the Lord. So uh, if you've been with us during the summer, you know that we've been working our way through the Psalms of Ascent. These are Psalms 120 through to 134, and they are pilgrim psalms. They are psalms that the pilgrims in Israel sang as they would head to Jerusalem three times a year for worship, the worship ceremonies, the special festivals that were held in Jerusalem. And these psalms come in sets of three. And the sets of three are often labeled the hardship psalm, the help psalm, and the home psalm, or sometimes the heaven psalm. The hardship psalm, elucidating what's going on and what the problem is in the culture. The help psalm, saying how to deal with it, what the solution is. And the home psalm, reminding us of the beauty of the coming kingdom of God, or in the case of the pilgrims, Zion or Jerusalem, when they would arrive there. Now, these psalms, of course, then all look very similar, going through that process of hardship, help, and heaven. But what they do is they provide vignettes or flavor to the discipleship process. There's a process of growth or change uh, as the pilgrim and the disciple moves through their walk of faith. The pilgrimage to Jerusalem was dangerous. It was called, they're called the Psalms of Ascent because you walked up to Mount Zion or to Jerusalem because it was in a high place. And you had to walk along roads that were dangerous amongst people and culture that may have ridiculed or tormented you or worse. And this is not a new idea um, of, of Zion. It's something we've been talking about throughout our sermon series. And in Psalm 123 at this pattern, we looked, because we're in the 123, 124, 125 pattern, the issue that was at hand was this idea of ridicule of the arrogant or contempt of the proud. And we dug into that and we saw that really what it's talking about is the culture. It's a culture which doesn't acknowledge who God is, that is tormenting or ridiculing or mocking or holding in contempt those who are living in a different way. And then in 124, which we looked at last week, it was the psalm of help, remembering the phrase, if God had been on our side. And in that psalm, we looked at, in effect, what I like to call three gear changes. If God had been on our side, it, no, if God had not been on our side, in other words, we were successful because, or we are successful because God is on our side. And the three perspectives were, actually, God is not on our side. If we think like that, we make him into a slot machine. And then the second point was, we actually need to be on God's side, first gear change. Second gear change up into third gear, I guess, is the idea that 
actually, when we are on God's side, when we have his eyes and his ears, his sensibilities, when our mind is attuned to his lens and we live in his space and on his mission, the experience is that he is on our side. So we have to step through those gears. We can't shortcut that process as we work through the scripture to get the full intent of the meaning. And sort of like that, on this, these psalms of, of ascent, these psalms in effect of discipleship, we need to think in those terms. When my children were born, they had the name Cook. They fully belonged to us. There was no question of that, and yet they had none of our characteristics, none of our training, none of our discipleship. Or So the belonging is not in question here. But the discipleship journey is a shaping, changing, challenging, and refining journey that we're on. And we see that as consistent with Scripture. We see that in Moses coming out of the wilderness. There's a discipleship journey that the people of Israel, sorry, going into the wilderness, coming out of slavery in Egypt, there's a discipleship journey that they're on, right? And it's true of us as Christians as well. We belong as soon as we become Christians. But we are being discipled. We are growing and maturing and, in a sense, growing into the identity that we were born into. So we look at this perspective, again, from two perspectives that are in the psalm itself. The mountains are us, in verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like, like Mount Zion. And the mountains are God, in verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. In verse 1, we're looking at the disciple who trusts and endures is like Mount Zion. Endures again, like we looked at in Psalm 123, in the context here of being shaken, doesn't mean goes on forever, although it certainly does mean that, but what it really means here is survives, puts up with, gets through, isn't killed by, remains true despite the attempts to shake him. And in verse 3, we see that this idea then of this being a home psalm, a Zion arriving psalm, starts to look a little sketchy, right? So we've got this idea of endurance. Then we've got the scepter of the wicked, the hands of the evil in verse 3, followed in the second part by crooked ways and a request to God to banish the evil. It doesn't sound like a homeward-bound psalm. It's not where I want to live for eternity with all this chaos and mess going on. But then on the flip side, we come to verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. Here we get this sense that God's people are safe, they're protected, they're secure. They're having some sort of experience, some sort of foretaste at least, or some sort of um, beginning of an experience of home. So if we are Mount Zion, then God is the greater mountain's that surround us. So there are two gear changes here that we're going to work through, two perspective shifts. First gear is what does it mean to live behind enemy lines? And the second one is what does it mean that we don't live behind enemy lines? Once again, they seem contradictory, but hopefully they'll make sense by the time we get to the end of the sermon. So how do we, what does it mean to live behind enemy lines? Well, if we look at verse 3, let me read it to you. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. Now, here we go. The scepter of the wicked. That term means 
the rule, the authority, the control of the wicked. And it says it will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, which means, of course, if it won't remain, that it's there now. That as they're walking through these lands on this pilgrimage, the scepter of the wicked, the rule, the authority, the control of the wicked seems to be dominating the places they're walking through. They are living behind enemy lines in a land controlled by the, the wicked. Now remember, we looked at some of this when we looked at Psalm 123. Christians constantly live under, endure was that same word again, picking up on that idea that it's ongoing and, and heavy and, and constant, ridicule of the arid and the contempt of the proud. You can go back and listen to that. It's online if you want to. And we looked down at the arrogant and the proud being synonymous for no dependence and submission to God. And we really, what it was talking about was a godless culture that ridicules and mocks and has contempt for those who are dependent and submit to God. We're saying that that can and probably should apply to Christians today just as much as it applied to followers of Yahweh at the time. And so if this is a psalm of ascent, right, then it really should be a survival guide for the journey or the pilgrimage. And so we need to ask in this survival guide, what's the danger that you're identifying and what's the way we get through it? And so let's ask those two questions. And then we can ask ourselves, is the, is the danger real? So first of all, I want to say that in, I was trying to think of good analogies for survival guides. So I had a look at the US Special Forces Survival Guide, which you can get online. And there's a very interesting example in there of what to do when you are under attack by a giant python in the Amazon. Okay, And the truth of the matter is that that's, whilst very interesting, not super relevant to us today. If you really want to know how to survive an attack by a giant python in the Amazon, come and see me in Fellowship Hour and I'll tell you the technique to use. But what we're looking at here and what we're trying to determine here is what are the dangers that are being identified in this psalm and what are the skills or the solution to that problem? And so we see here in Psalm, in verse, the second part of verse 3, so I'll read the first part, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, and here's the danger, or then the righteous might use their wicked hands to do evil. So it's giving up, that's the danger, giving up and joining the enemy, in a sense selling out. Now Rico Tykes, some of you may know him, he's a British preacher, a very famous British preacher, uh, he uses an illustration which I, I really love here. I'm, most of you are probably familiar with MI5 and MI6, the internal and external spy agencies of the British government. But during the war, they had another division called MI9. And the job of MI9 was to train airmen who were shot down behind enemy lines in the skill of escaping from behind enemy lines and returning to Britain so they could get back in their planes and continue the mission of defeating the, the Nazis. And this, uh, this division, this MI9, was pretty successful. But the biggest problem they had, believe it or not, was not instilling the skill set into 
the airmen, but the fact that the airmen were very good and most of them actually managed to get out of Nazi Germany. They didn't really want to be in a Nazi prisoner of war camp. A lot of them got to Italy or got to what's called Vichy France or, or German-controlled France at the time, and that's when things got hard. Not because they didn't have the skills to get out, but life in Italy and life in Vichy France where the people around weren't that really that interested in the war or the Nazis and really weren't uh, dedicated to the cause was pretty good for these airmen. And in fact, the biggest problem that MI9 described was people falling in love with French and Italian women and French and Italian countryside and just not coming home. And there's one famous story of an airman who used the money that he'd been given, uh, which is they all carried uh, uh, money that the British government had made that could be used, forged money to get out, used his money to bet on a horse, won that, ended up earning enough money at the racetrack in France to buy a racehorse and then buy an apartment, fell in love with a French woman and settled down. Very, very famous case. It's probably the most extreme case of a British airman not completing the mission of being absorbed into the culture, in a sense. And the point that's being made here is that this really is the great danger. This is what it really means, then, to use their hands to do evil. The desire for relationships and success get in the way of the mission. We're absorbed into the culture. Uh, we use... Uh, you can join the enemy, and I want to make this really clear, right? You, you basically, you're giving up. You're using the righteous hand to do evil, to buy into the cultural narrative. And you can do this inside the church. We as a church, in fact, can blend into the, into the culture to the point that we become the enemy. We effectively could easily become a collaborator church, lose sight of the mission. In a sense, we as a church could fall in love with the racehorse, fall in love with a French woman and buy an apartment and completely forget the purpose and the mission that God has given us. Now, faithful disciples do not expect to fit in. Let me read from you John 15, 18 to 21. This was in the last week of Jesus' life. So this is the important teaching that Jesus is making. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hates me first. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but have chosen, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So, Again, we unpack this in a lot of detail. This is not an acrimonious, violent, aggressive relationship that we perpetrate against the world. We're not saboteurs trying to bring down the world. We don't look for trouble and we don't be or support uh, co coercive or controlling acts, even if they're done in the name of the church. But in our culture, what this means effectively, what it means to not be absorbed into culture is to be bold in our identity and an enigma with our behavior. I'll say that again. It means to be bold with our identity as children of God. 
as followers of Christ, as people transformed and living under a different value system and an enigma in our behavior. People see that value system and they ask, why? What is that? I don't understand. And in fact, those very acts of coercive and controlling things, they are simply the, the church being the world. We are not that. But how we deal with what it means to belong, or whether we do or don't belong, whether we do or don't have money, whether we do or don't have power, how we do or don't do our relationships, forgiveness, are we seen as people of forgiveness, honesty, sacrifice, service? Do people look at us and say, they are really weird in their beliefs, but oh my goodness, it's good to have them on our team. I really don't get the thinking, but my goodness, if we need something done, if we need someone who's honest, who has integrity, who follows through, who's committed, uh, who serves, they're the people to call. Are we bold in our identity and are we enigma in our behavior? Now, some people say to me, yeah, no, I get that, but I want to know how and where do I get all these opportunities to be bold in my identity and have to be an enigma in my behavior? Well, may I suggest that you start with prayer. Start with God and ask him to help you be bold. Ask for opportunities. Ask for opportunities both to express and explain your faith, that's the hope that's within you, and ask for opportunities to demonstrate your behavior is an enigma. Pray that God will give you a chance to connect and expect God to work through that. Pray, connect, and expect God to work. Now, okay, so that's the great danger identified in Psalm 125. What is the survival skill? This, this danger of being absorbed into the culture. What's the survival skill? What's the survival skill in the face of this great threat of being absorbed in? Well, if you were, you were a British airman and your choice was to fall in love with a French woman, live the high life in the Riviera, and enjoy your career as a professional gambler and racehorse owner, or return back to dark, dank, dark Britain, which is being constantly bombed, and get in another plane and fly back over Germany, what would you choose? What would you choose? I mean, I'm not asking you maybe what your ethics or your morals or your character would do, but what would you want to choose? If you, if you could choose either, you would definitely choose the French Riviera, the racehorse, and the French falling in love with someone who's French. I know that I would. So how could going back to Britain possibly be a good option? And here we're dealing with what Christians need to understand as the Mayflower. Sorry, Maggie. Going back to Britain is sometimes a good option. Um, the Mayflower perspective. We talked about this before. The Mayfly. The Mayfly. Sorry, not the Mayfly. The Mayfly. The Mayfly lives for 24 hours. And if you go and ask a Mayfly, hey. What's life like? First mayfly is going to say, it's sunny. And man, it's humid and hot. Second one's going to say, oh, it's cold. And it rains all the time. Another one says, it's always snowing. You cannot get an accurate perspective on life if you live 80 years by asking a mayfly who lives for one day. It's illogical. It's irrational. It's foolish. The perspective is way too short-sighted. And this is the point that James is making when he describes our life as like 
a puff of air or that, that blows the grass backwards and forwards, uh, that, that we are simply like clouds passing by. Mayflower perspectives get in the way of us recognizing the big picture that's at work. The airmen didn't realize that World War II ends. And then you've got to answer to the British government. You know, we're not super excited that you took that money and you bought a racehorse and you never came back and you missed the mission. Let's just say he had a good time for the rest of the war, but while most people were celebrating the end of the war, he was tried and convicted as a deserter. Our culture is the same and maximize, it says, maximize the 80 years. That's the Mayfly, Mayfly perspective. When I do communion, you'll hear me say, this table doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to North Point, it doesn't belong to Presbyterians, it doesn't belong to North Americans, and it doesn't belong to this epoch in time. And what I'm saying there is it transcends our culture. It's much bigger. It is, it is everlasting. The godly perspective is the only perspective that gives us a grounding and a security and a certainty and a hope that makes sense because it's the only one that lasts. It's the only one that's not fabricated on some small-minded view of the lifespan of the fly or the world war or the human. So we read verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. Like Mount Zion that cannot be shaken but endures forever. The kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God, and the, coming, the kingdom of God that's already broken in endures forever. If we are part of that value system, we're escaping the Mayfly, the World War II, and the cultural view, which is so myopic and so distorted, and we can start to develop and hold on to a view that gives us strength to live behind enemy lines. The covenant God's view is the only truly long-term safe view to look at what's going on around us. Now, how do you trust the Lord? How do you develop this? You sing his praises. You sing these songs of ascent. You delve into his scripture. You listen to his word. You develop uh, through his spirit and his scripture his lens. If we read verses 4 and 5, it says, The Lord, Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but to those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Now, that's not happening at the time they're doing this. That's not what they're experiencing. This is talking about the judgment of the Lord. Now, our culture doesn't like this. Our culture finds this offensive. But it's actually... Something, first of all, just because you don't like it doesn't mean you can't say it isn't true. Secondly, it's actually the only long-term hope. And we see that in verse 5 in the last part, the very last line. Peace be on Israel. Peace, shalom. And that really is the term flourishing. Evil must be defeated in order for the kingdom of God and those in the kingdom of God to truly flourish. And that can only come about by the judgment of God. So God is coming as judge. This will not always be enemy territory. Thinking like that is Mayflower thinking. 
Now, they're hard truths because they don't really fit into the lens that our culture likes to, to observe. But I hope by this stage, and we're moving on to the second point now, what does it mean not to live in enemy territory? I hope you've moved through first gear. You've shifted there. We are living behind enemy lines. We trust God to be unshakable. We're going to adopt his lens rather than the mayfly lens of culture. Now, are you ready to change into second gear? Our cultural experience of living behind enemy lines is also a Mayflower perspective. You see, was Zion really a far-off destination to these pilgrims? Or is home, is home really that far away from, from them? Let's look at verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The Lord surrounds his people. The psalmist is not saying, oh, if I can only get there, if I can make it to heaven, if I can just get to the coming kingdom of God, I'll be safe and secure then. That's not what he's saying. The key to security is to be where the Lord is. Home is where the Lord is. Now, God is with the pilgrims as they walk in faith to Zion. Now, God was with Moses when he walked in faith out of Egypt. Remember the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that led them. Now, of course, if they turned around and gone the other way, the pillar wasn't going to follow them. When they were on mission, they experienced the presence of God. And... If we look closely at the Great Commission, we see something pretty amazing there too. The beginning lines of the Great Commission are, all authority, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. People often don't read those lines, but they're really important. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Therefore, we are not, first of all, behind enemy lines. We're not behind enemy lines. The authority is Jesus. He is in control. It goes on to say, what should our response be to the fact that we're actually not behind enemy lines? In fact, what we're more likely doing is mopping off after rebellion that has been put down that we were actually part of, if you want to get a better metaphor. And what are we supposed to do then? What's mission? Right? Mission then is, and I'm going to uh, read this more in the way that it's framed in the Greek, than it is in the English. Therefore, primary verb, make disciples. The process of making disciples is the key mission that we as the church, the body of Christ, are on. And how do we make disciples? Three participles here, by going, baptizing, and teaching, right? By going, that means being on mission, right? You don't Gamble what you've been given in terms of your resource on a racehorse, even if you win. And then you don't buy an apartment, and you don't buy a racehorse, and you don't live in the French Riviera, and you don't let yourself fall in love with a French woman. You return back to dark, dank Britain, which is being bombed, and you get in another aeroplane, and you fly back over Nazi Germany. You stay on mission because you adopt a non-Mayfly perspective. Baptizing which really means bringing people into covenant community. Now, you have heard me say multiple times that we are living in a place with family all around us, all over the North Shore, who belong in this church, who are people of God. We just haven't found them. They've been left behind. 
Now, I don't understand why this was so important that this is basically the last thing Jesus said to the, to the fragile church. It was clearly super urgent to him. How urgent is it to us? How much is that playing on our hearts? How much are we praying, connecting, and expecting? How much are we feeling the desire, the orientation, the heart attitude, the lens of meeting, of expressing, of being bold with our identity and having a character which is enigma? And then the last thing is teaching. Okay, so we do have to then follow that up by teaching people, basically exhorting them independence and submission, which is the path to freedom, the same path that we ourselves understand as the path to freedom. So what happens when we do this? And this is the point I'm really trying to make in the Great Commission. Get back on mission, absolutely. We're no longer in enemy territory. Christ is authority over all of heaven and earth. Get back on mission, make disciples, uh, going, baptizing and teaching. And then what happens? The Shekinah cloud the glory of God, the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke. We're in the presence of the Lord. We experience the presence of the Lord. Now, people sometimes talk not about experiencing God. We experience God's presence by acknowledging our dependence and giving him our obedience. Now, this can seem really trite. I get that. It can seem simplistic in the short term. Psalm 123, a week ago, constant cultural ridicule and contempt. Psalm 124, seething anger. Floods and torrents of anger washing over the pilgrims. It was like having being ripped apart by savage animals. It was like being a bird trapped in a cage. And this week, living under the scepter of the wicked, which is why, and this is, of course, consistent, by the way, with what we read in the chapter from John, right? This is often the life and, and probably is, in some ways, the life of the disciple. But this is why... There are cries all the way through these psalms. In 123, have mercy on us. We've had more than enough contempt. Psalm 125, do good to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, our culture, we're not exposed as many, to as many of the things as they were ex, uh, exposed to on their pilgrimage, but I think there are things that get in the way of experiencing God, hard things for people in our culture. I mean, one that I thing comes up more often than people realize are the mental health afflictions of depression, anxiety, and trauma. And people, of course, are stigmatized when people look at them and say, why aren't you having that wonderful ecstatic experience? Why can't you be more trusting in the Lord? And it's totally appropriate in these cases to make the desperate cry. But it's also reorienting it, it, it helps us develop a God lens instead of a mayfly lens to get back on mission, even if you're experiencing depression or anxiety or trauma or, or attachment issues. You see, the reorientation brings short-term and medium-term relief. He is with us. His spirit is with us. We can look at the cross in very simplistic, and yet it's certainly not less than this, you died on the cross, Lord. I accept my dependence on you. You rose from the dead, Lord. I acknowledge your lordship. It was never the mountains or the walls that made Jerusalem safe. It was the presence of the Lord. And there is real hardship on the pilgrimage, but only within the limits of God's purposes. 
He's not just saying, I sustain you behind enemy lines. Good luck. Here's some money. He's saying, I have all authority on heaven and earth, and I am with you. So we're settling, settling down and becoming a collaborator may at first seem easier, right? But it alienates us from the experience of God. It's painful. We're exposed to the vagrancies of our culture, the lens of the mayfly, the scepter of the wicked, the fickle, the temporary, the shifting sands, the wilting grass, all so temporary and painful. We allow ourselves to be absorbed into the culture because we want to fit into what? Let me encourage you to get on the right side of redemptive history. Are we really prisoners behind enemy lines or are we mopping up after a failed rebellion that we were actually once part of? Christ, is God's kingdom retreating or is it advancing? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The victory is won. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Christ. So we conclude being reminded of the two mountains, right? The two mountain metaphors. Believers are like Mount Zion. They can st stand firm because of the power and the character of God. Not because of their own uh, power or character, but because they can see a bigger perspective rather than a Mayflower lens of the power and the character of God. Believers are safe like Jerusalem already. In a sense, they're already home. They're foretasting home. They're already surrounded by mountains because God is with us. Now, prophets came and prosecuted God's people. They brought to them the message of judgment. We see that in verse 5, and we read it before, but I'll read it again. Do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but to those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Being God's people, experiencing his protection and peace is covenantal. There are stipulations and blessings given to the Old Testament. Zion was, Jerusalem was seen as Zion. In the New Testament, it's the coming kingdom. The presence, being in the presence of Zion, being in Zion, requires full acknowledgement of our dependence. Being in Zion requires full covenant submission to the Lord, and none of us could claim that. We are pilgrims on the way. It doesn't mean the Lord is not with us, but we haven't reached the final destination where our hearts are purified and we're completely clean. But without obedience, full obedience and full submission, there is judgment, not Zion. Now, the people of the Old Testament knew they weren't fit for Zion and they offered sacrifices. What do we do? What do we do? We do the same thing or something very similar. It's established in establishing the new covenant, Christ comes as not just a establishing a covenant, but also prosecuting the covenant. As a prophet who prosecutes, he offers himself as a living sacrifice, and in this sense, he comes as a priest. He comes as a priest offering a sacrifice. And in conquering death, he claims his own divinity, and Christ comes also as Lord and King. Christ, prophet, priest, and king. 
This is why we need to throw ourselves on his mercy. The victory has been won. The rebellion has been put down. Christ is mopping up the evil. Even the evil is still in our hearts. To be home is to be with God, even when it feels like we are still behind enemy lines. We are both home and we can cry out to be home. Both are true. We are home and we cry out to be fully home. This is the story of pilgrimage. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we dig into these questions of discipleship, help us not to be afraid to look at these hard questions. What does it mean to be people who build our lives around your character, your faithfulness, your mercy, your justice? What does it mean to stay on mission, to trust that you really do have all authority? to look to what it means to be obedient, to go, to make disciples. Father, all of life is worship, but before the second coming, not all of life is easy. We have the choice. We can become deserters, we can blend in, we can, we can be absorbed by the culture, or we can stand firm, with may, with, not with mayfly perspectives, but with your perspective, your lens. Your eyes bringing your love and your peace through your mission to this world. Help us to be faithful, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing as we respond to the word we've heard?